is the Covenus Monograph Show. Super Bowl 48 has come and gone, and it wasn't the pandemonium weather-wise that everyone was kind of secretly hoping for. But boy, the pandemonium was left on the field. Uh, what a what a day to be a Denver sports fan. Ouch. That's going to sting for a while. It's February 4th, 2014. He's been shunned by commercial radio, unable to be bought and paid for by corporate America, and running on the fossil fuel of common sense. For those of us that choose to live dangerously in the radical middle, welcome to the Zip Code Famous Michael Graff Show. Now the world is getting older. There's a few things to be said. Do you believe the things they told you? Do you believe the things you read? There's a rule on the corner, but it's always been denied. Cause they don't want you any wiser. You're just towing the party line from the west side to the east side, from the north side to the south. You'll never get back information if you believe in the word of mouth. What a game that was. I uh, I don't even know I don't even know how to accurately summarize that blowout that was Super Bowl 48. I'll say this uh, I guess they're probably going to do another one in uh, a cold weather city because this one kind of went off without a hitch. It didn't have the uh, the pandemonium weather that we were all sort of hoping for. It didn't have the the big blizzard. There wasn't a driving snowstorm. Although actually after the game, right uh, just after the game ended. And after the pomp and circumstance of sort of the ceremonies following the game, the awarding of the Lombardi Trophy and all of that, there was snow and quite a bit of it, and people had trouble getting out of New Jersey, which, I mean, there is nothing worse than feeling like you're trapped in New Jersey. I, I can't even imagine. And so you're trying to get out of there on trains, and of course they're shut down or they're delayed because of the weather conditions. So that was, um, that was certainly... A nightmare that people experienced after the game. And of course, if you were a Denver Broncos fan, it just made the sting that much worse, I imagine. Man, not a good time to be a Denver sports fan. What do you have to look forward to? The Nuggets? The Rockies being a fifth place team again? Um, what, what the, the Colorado Avalanche? I don't know. It doesn't, doesn't look so good for the Denver sports market right about now. Man, that game was uh, awful from, from the word go. Um, I, I first of all, let me just as a brief aside. I really wish I had just gone to Vegas and bet some money on Seattle. I uh, I told all my friends I was going to. I told anybody that was listening that I was going to. Um, I thought you know the Seahawks were just built to beat this Denver team. It really seemed that way. Uh, you know the kind of game that Peyton Manning uh, is is based around the kind of of structure that he likes. The kind of cross routes that he likes to throw over the middle. The the screen passes the that sort of middle-of-the-field kind of game that he likes. Seattle's just designed to stop. You can't throw it deep against Seattle because of their uh, shutdown uh, secondary. You know, Richard Sherman is back there, and um, although Richard Sherman did get hurt toward the end of the game. And, uh, you know, it was just, 
it, it was just a game. It was a whole, it was a team designed to beat the Denver Broncos. I mean, here you had this team, this vaunted offense. They scored more points than anybody in the history of the NFL in, in a season, 606 points during the regular season. And um, they were number one in just about every offensive category whereas Seattle was number one in just about every defensive category. And it just shows, once again, the old stereotype about the NFL and about really professional sports in general is that defense wins championships. You can say that for the NBA, uh, generally speaking. You can say that certainly even in baseball, pitching in defense. Uh, hockey, you know, a, a goalie, what does they say? The, 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 the goalie that stands on his head. Always hated that expression, but, you know, the... the the sh- a goalie, a hot goalie can carry you all the way to the Stanley Cup championship. So it's it's really about the defense. Seattle had the best defense, not only of the, of the season, but really one of the best defenses of all time. Uh, it was just an amazing game. And of course, it didn't help that Denver really shot themselves in the foot a couple of times. Uh, 12 seconds into the game, center Manny Ramirez snaps the ball over the head of Peyton Manning. And uh, right there, there's a safety, two points. And, you know, the, the interesting part about that, I, I had flashbacks for a moment of that Super Bowl. What was it like in 1989, 1990, something like that? Um, I watched it with my dad. I remember uh, John Elway getting absolutely embarrassed as quarterback of the Denver Broncos by the by the San Francisco 49ers, 55 to 10. We watched that game and just couldn't believe how bad that was. And I was like 12 or 11 when that happened. It was uh <laughs> that was that was an awful awful Super Bowl, uh, and and so is this one. And so of course, you know during the game I'm just looking for things. And, and again, well played game by Seattle. And I'll just mention this too, since we're talking about the game, and then I'll get into the commercials and all the other stuff surrounding the game in a moment. But um, for people that talk about how Denver looked like they were unprepared, or Peyton Manning can't win the big game, or John Fox, who's the coach of the Denver Broncos, he's a terrible coach. People were saying that, or he's just not a big game coach, or, you know, this is the second Super Bowl that John Fox has been in and lost. He, he doesn't know how to prepare for the big game. How about this? How about Seattle was just a superior team? It, it doesn't matter what kind of fundamentals uh, Denver brought to the table. It doesn't matter uh, how good of a coach John Fox is, and he is a good coach. Look, Denver was an amazing team this year. They won the AFC. Um, and, and they shut down Tom Brady and the New England Patriots just two weeks earlier to get to the Super Bowl. I mean, this is not some pushover joke of a team. It's just that they were up against a juggernaut. They were up against a, a, a defense that was one of the best defenses all time in the history of the NFL. It doesn't matter. It's not that they weren't prepared. It's not that John, uh, John Elway, see, I'm, I'm back on it again. It's not that Peyton Manning isn't a good quarterback. It's not that the Denver Broncos offensive line is bad and couldn't protect Peyton. It's not that their receivers are bad and couldn't catch a pass. It's just that Seattle's defense is is so unbelievable. And, you know, Seattle's offense is good enough, too. I mean, Russell Wilson uh, is more than just a game manager quarterback. Don't don't compare him to Trent Dilfer. Don't compare him to these quarterbacks that just managed the game so to speak and just got the job done it, it was he is a, uh, a in his second year this is a guy that was leading his offense leading his team to a Super Bowl I mean how incredible is that just think about that so 
no matter what sport you play, whether it's football, basketball, baseball, you know, even chess or even an e-sport, when you're against a superior opponent, all the preparation in the world, all the planning, all the scheming, even if you play a, a, a perfect game, you're probably still going to lose because your opponent is superior. That's just the way it is. So, you know, people are like, oh, well, Peyton Manning has lost more playoff games than any quarterback in history. That's well, all well and good. But first of all, they play more playoff games now. They have more rounds than they used to, you know, 30 years ago. Uh, secondly, um, Peyton Manning has been in the playoffs a lot in his career. He's faced superior opponents. Uh, Tom Brady was a superior opponent. The, the New England Patriots back uh, several years ago, superior opponent. You know, that's just the bottom line. And the guy has still, he's won a Super Bowl. Peyton Manning does have a Super Bowl ring. He is a Super Bowl MVP as well as a uh, uh, multi-award winning MVP for the regular season. So let's not start this whole, oh, he chokes in the big game or he doesn't know how to prepare for the big game or he's just not a big game quarterback. That's just a bunch of nonsense. It's a bunch of stuff that people like to throw out. Whenever a team loses, that's what people always like to say. They they make the losing team seem like they're just such a piece of crap. It's just that in this case, Seattle was so vastly superior. And not only was it Seattle, but the NFC in general is better than the AFC right now in the National Football League. That's just reality um i bet uh, and seattle plays in the toughest division not only in the nfl but in in probably all of professional sports maybe you could say the afc or the um the al east in baseball is similar the al east is close uh to the nfc west in the nfl but i don't know i mean san francisco 49ers tough. Uh, the Arizona Cardinals, believe it or not, the Arizona Cardinals, good team, very high quality defense. They even beat Seattle once this year. And uh, and the St. Louis Rams, uh, you know, while they didn't win a lot of games, very competitive, very hard-nosed team. I'll tell you this, had San Francisco or Arizona played Denver on Sunday, they would have won as well. You know, they would have beaten Denver. And again, it's not that Denver's bad. It's, they're the best team in their conference. It's just that their conference isn't very good. Their division isn't very good. Their conference isn't very good. That's the difference. And that's that's probably why the NFC will be winning more championships in the coming years. Probably stringing several of these together. Probably even Seattle. Uh, it's hard to say, but and it's very hard to repeat in the NFL. But if a team is going to be able to do it, it would be Seattle, barring some kind of traumatic injury, barring a, a loss of a lot of players to free agency. And, you know, certainly that happens in this league. But I think that Seattle is, um, and look, the quality of teams in the NFL too has gone down. So when a, when a team emerges like Seattle, they're going to just dominate a lot of these other teams that are that have glaring weaknesses. And Denver has a glaring weakness in special teams. Um you know, their defense is is decent, but not spectacular. And on this particular day, their offense couldn't even execute. So mainly because Seattle just gave them too much, too many fits back there. 
All right, so that's the game. That's kind of the breakdown. I mean, I, I mean, we could go with it uh, where the backbreaker of the game was, uh, the fact that Denver couldn't score right before halftime, the fact that uh, right out of halftime, uh, Seattle r- runs an, uh, the opening kickoff back for a touchdown. Percy Harvin goes uh, 87 yards, runs it back for a, uh, for a score. Um, could be the interception that was returned for a touchdown. I mean, it, there's there's lots of moments in this game where you could sit there and you could say, well, this is where the game really changed. You know, there's lots of those incidents where you could say that that happened. But I don't know. I don't know. There, I don't know if there's any one key moment. I think that opening kickoff in the second half, that, that probably was it. Denver said, you know, we, we might be able to, if we can stop them here, if we can get on the board... We're, we're down three touchdowns. You know, we're down 22 to nothing. We could come back in this game. Well, as it turns out, yeah, not so much. All right, um, a few other thoughts here. Uh, the commercials. Wow, what about those commercials? Uh, pretty, I won't even say bad, just really kind of boring. Really nothing inspirational in there. Nothing that just, I, I, I remember I chuckled at a couple of the commercials. Um, I, I don't know... Most of them didn't really seem all that original. Uh, the the beer commercials, the Bud, uh, what was it, the Bud Light commercial or Budweiser commercial? Um, I, I don't know. I wasn't really, I wasn't amused. Um, then, of course, there was the Coca-Cola controversy. Coke had an ad for, uh, well, they you know they had one of their commercials, and you know every year they they have. I don't know. I think Coke, generally speaking, does a pretty good job with their commercials. But this commercial was weird. It was, uh, you know, America the Beautiful sung in different languages. And I had no problem with it myself. But I remember thinking to myself at the time, I was just like, this this is not going to go over well. And I told somebody the same thing. I said, this is not going to go over well uh, because... Here in America, we can't, we, no way can we have America the Beautiful sung in a different language because that's, somehow that's completely wrong. And I know that people in certain states, you know, that, um, well, uh, you know, maybe like Alabama, for example, Georgia, Mississippi, Texas, Louisiana, you know, a certain region of the country we like to call the South. Uh, I'm pretty sure that that commercial didn't go over well there. And certainly it didn't because there was a firestorm that blew up on social media, Facebook, Twitter. It was just everywhere. People were just incensed that Coke would have a commercial with, oh, my God, they're singing America the Beautiful in other languages. How terrible is that? Like right away, you knew that that was going to be a problem. And then Coke actually had to come out and they're like, look, you know, uh, we don't really, we don't know what we did wrong. You know, it's like, they really, and there are people that are upset about it. I've heard talk show hosts that are upset about it. How could you be a, who cares? It's a dumb commercial. They didn't do it in a mocking way. That was the other thing. Like, I could understand maybe someone gets riled up. Like, I don't even get upset about any of that stuff. Like, I'm not offended by commercials. I'm not offended by some concept on TV. I don't care if if someone's nipple shows. None of that stuff bothers me. So I don't get offended. But there are times I could at least understand maybe a, a tiny bit of outrage about something. 
but they didn't do it in a mocking way. They weren't uh, mocking any other cultures. They weren't mocking America. In fact, they were just trying to, they were like, gee, you know, here's America the Beautiful, sung by a bunch of different uh, cultures of people that happen to live in America. What's wrong with that? But apparently it, it's a controversy. It blew up into a big firestorm. So that was the commercial that got all everybody talking, of all of them. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know. Insurance bought a commercial right right after the the end of the game, where they're giving away like uh, a million bucks or something like that. I actually like that commercial more than more than any of the other ones. <laughs> they're like, hey, we just saved like over a million bucks, and you know, we're gonna pass that savings on to you. Somebody could win this money. The guy's like eating chips over a big pile of money, and he said, "Oh, I spilled guacamole on, uh, on some of this. Uh, I guess I'll just keep uh, keep this little stack here of money." And uh, then he puts it back. But you know, I don't know. That commercial was better than half the the car commercials or any of the other crap. I'm not easily impressed by commercials anymore, just because I, I think most of the concepts have been done. I mean, how many times can you see someone get hit in the balls by something or? You know, I mean, you know, obviously animal commercials and stuff, uh, the 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 dog and the horse. And I mean, that that's OK. And, you know, it's always kind of an awe factor to all of that. But overall, just felt like um, felt like the commercials were just kind of meh, kind of lackluster. And you spent three and a half million bucks on on a commercial. You'd think you'd make it really, really good. There was the Doritos time machine one. I remember that now that that one wasn't too terribly awful. Um, it was kind of amusing. I mean, it, you saw exactly where that was going right away, but, you know, I was like, all right, that's cool. Um, I guess Doritos, I get fans sent in their ideas for commercials, supposedly. I don't know. So there was that. A um, couple other thoughts on the Super Bowl. Oh, yeah, I mentioned Richard Sherman, the all-star, uh, you know, <laughs> A guy, well, first of all, let's just say Richard Sherman, this is a guy that has garnered a ton of negative attention over the last couple of weeks because of his post-game tirade, if you want to call it that, uh, following Seattle beating the San Francisco 49ers to go to the Super Bowl. And he went off about a guy on the uh, 49ers named Michael Crabtree, talked about uh, how he talked a bunch of stuff. And, and Richard Sherman, this is in a post-game interview, immediately like walking off the field. You know, the sideline reporters grab you. The Richard Sherman, tell, tell us about that last play right there where you got the interception. And he just went off. Oh, they threw at me. I can't believe they threw at me. Ha, ha, ha. And, you know, sort of being uh, really just demonstrative. And people just thought that was the worst thing that could happen. And meanwhile, it's a real moment. It's a game full of emotions. It's a game filled with mental ups and downs and the physical hurdles that one has to endure for 60 minutes of football where you're just smashing each other. And, you know, it's a very competitive, well, it's the highest level of, of competitive play in that sport. And you're there in the, your conference championship game and you make a play to save the game. At the end, you know, the with the seconds ticking off the clock, you make an incredible interception and then, you know, you've you've just endured a bunch of smack talk from the opposing team for 60 minutes. And now, you know, here you're coming off the field and you're emotionally charged up and, you know, you go off about a guy, you know, in, in front of the camera. Not the most professional thing to do, per se, 
But God, I mean, refreshing because it's just pure raw emotion. It's not the canned PC answer that you always get. But people were just like, oh, Richard Sherman's a thug. Richard Sherman's this. Richard, you know, yeah, he's a black guy. So, of course, he has to be a thug, right? I mean, that's that's what it is. That's that's the label that has to be thrown out there because he he acted demonstrative and loud. Imagine that a football player who literally 10 seconds ago just intercepted a pass to to seal the win for his team walks off the field and is interviewed and gives you an emotionally charged demonstrative answer. So that must make him a thug. Okay. So he took a lot of crap for that. And then media week happens at the Super Bowl or leading up to the Super Bowl. And everyone expects more of Richard Sherman's crazy antics. And they expect him to go off and mouth off about somebody else or talk some smack. And, of course, he was very well behaved, very quiet. I would almost say sedate. And the New York media ripped him for it. The same media that was ripping him for being demonstrative and vocal and just, oh, they can't believe this guy would just go off like that at the end of a game. Now they're criticizing him because he's not doing that. And the only reason is because now they have nothing to write about. The only thing they can write about is how he's now behaving. And it's like, you know, you got the guy after a game. Who cares? Like, I felt, I kind of felt bad for Richard Sherman. Then he gets injured toward the end of the game. And, you know, the game is very much over, but he's out there. He's playing hard. And I mean, that, that's the other thing about Seattle. I mean, they, all 60 minutes, they played a tough game. Uh, you know, they didn't really quit. Uh, they did call the dogs off a little bit. You know, they, they put in... Um, Oh, my God, I, I just forgot. Uh, I think the uh, Tavarius Jackson, isn't that who they put in? At quarterback um, uh, at the, you know, about three minutes to go in the game. And I realized Denver really was, they were just running the clock out as well. They weren't even trying in about, about, about the 10-minute mark to go in the fourth quarter. They just flat out gave up. They quit, which part of me understands and part of me thinks is, is definitely a letdown if you were a Broncos fan. Uh, nevertheless, Richard Sherman gets injured. After the game, Peyton Manning, who had just been beaten and humiliated in this game, seeks out Richard Sherman after the game and asks how he's doing, asks how his, you know, how his knee is and his leg and everything. And uh, to, because, they, of course, nobody really knew the extent of his injury at the time. They weren't sure if it was a, a knee, a, a shin, uh, exactly what it was. Uh, certainly the players weren't 100% sure, especially on the you know, on the Denver Broncos. So he seeks out um, Richard Sherman to find out what happened and if he's okay. And Richard Sherman, you know, went off uh, uh, on Twitter about all these people that are bashing Peyton Manning saying, hey, look, man, this guy came out. He, he wanted to see how I was doing after the game. You know, he, this is a class act. He's a, a future MVP or a future a Hall of Famer you know, a Super Bowl MVP. Let's let's not put this guy down. Let's um, let's back off, give the guy some respect. And that's kind of how I feel too. And um, I think somebody that does that, that is the ultimate level of class. Um, you know, I, I've never been a Peyton Manning fan. I've never been a hater. I've just been kind of neutral. But I'll tell you, I, I'm more of a fan now after after the way he lost the game, or after after the loss, I'm more of a fan than probably had he won the Super Bowl. Honestly, um, there is something to be said for that level of humility 
and to show some some regard for the opponent that just kicked your teeth in. I mean, that's that's something right there. So uh, that's just that's basically that sums it up. Those are my thoughts on the Super Bowl. Oh, the uh, one other thing before the game, uh, sometime before the game, and I don't know why this is the tradition now. I don't know why we do this. But, of course, somebody always has to interview the president of the United States before the game, and they do it on the same network where the game is going to air. They, I, I, it's What is it? Probably about an hour before the game or so. I, I can't remember exactly. Um, but, of course, Bill O'Reilly interviewed Barack Obama. And, you know, look, uh, Barack Obama just sort of filibustered so that O'Reilly didn't get to ask him a lot of questions. Obama, of course, eluded answers. The one kind of interesting point that does stick out is that Obama said this very, very sort of funny thing, a little quip at O'Reilly. He said, I don't know what you guys are going to do when I'm gone. Like he doesn't under he doesn't know what kind of conservative talking heads or conservative talk show hosts are going to do after Barack Obama has gone. You know, Bill Clinton said the exact same thing. That was like, that is a textbook answer from Bill Clinton said that frequently. Uh, what are you guys going to do? Uh, I don't know. Probably they're going to continue to go on and be successful because just because like the, the, the idea here is, uh, well, if there's not a Democrat in the White House, who are you going to criticize? Uh, probably other Democrats. That's probably who they're going to criticize because, you know, that's their thing. Generally speaking, those those interviews are just, I'm not going to call them softballs, but they're just, you only get like 10 minutes with the president. Okay, you only get a very short window of time. Uh, the interview is just very much, uh, you know, well, Mr. what about healthcare.gov, blah, blah, blah. You know, that's that's where that was at. Just a disappointing job by Bill O'Reilly and disappointing job by President Obama. Um, I, I don't even generally watch those things. I, I saw it. I, I didn't see it live. I, I watched it later. Um, I wasn't overly impressed. And I know people were like, well, Bill O'Reilly kept trying to jump in and he wouldn't let the president finish an answer. It's because he only gets 10 minutes and the president's filibustering because he knows that the the, the more room, the more space he gives to Bill O'Reilly, the more tough questions that are going to be asked. You know, you might you don't have to like Bill O'Reilly, and generally I think the guy's a tool, but this is his opportunity to ask some tough questions that people do want to know about. Like what's going on with the Affordable Care Act? And boy, oh boy, is that a nightmare. That continues to just be a disaster. I, I hear story after story, day after day, about how this thing is it's not affordable in the slightest. It's a very niche of affordability for for a few people. And I guess we'll get into that in just a few minutes. Um, we'll probably talk about more. Well, I have more information. There's a report out today. And I don't know. I don't know the, the, the level of truth behind this. Okay, I'm not an investigative journalist. I just saw this. Uh, Bill Gertz wrote about this today. Uh, this is a, a thing that, uh, if true, is a little bit frightening. And it's just, it's just another WTF moment in the history of this Affordable Care Act, its rollout, and the website healthcare.gov. So we'll talk about that. 
Uh, I've got some other stuff to get into as well. Uh, stupid news. I don't know if we'll do the pop chart. We'll do something exciting in the third segment like we always do. And so much more to get to. It's the zip code famous Michael Groff Show. I love you whether or not you love me. I love you even if you think that I don't. Sometimes I find you doubt my love for you, but I don't mind. Why should I mind? Why should I mind? What is love anyway? Does anybody love anybody anyway? What is love anyway? Does anybody love anybody anyway? Famous Michael Groff Show. Groffshow at gmail.com, the email address. It's Groffshow at gmail.com. Michael Groff, the handle on Twitter, Michael Groff Show, AOL Instant Messenger, and for everything else Michael Groff related, it is always MichaelGroff.com. A couple other notes here. I just was kind of shuffling through and I, I found a couple other things I just wanted to mention on the uh, Super Bowl, real quick. It was the highest rated. TV event in history, the most watched television event, more accurately put, in U.S. television history. More than 110 million people watched Super Bowl 48 for some reason or another. I guess, you know, you couldn't really tell it was going to be a bad game beforehand. Um, <laughs> well, actually, you probably could have if you really were objective about it. Um, so yes, uh, 110 million people, a 70 share, just uh, incredible ratings. Four of the five top TV events in history, ratings-wise, are Super Bowls. While last year's Super Bowl did see a 1% decline in the audience, uh, this year's obviously broke all TV records. Uh, in Vegas... $119 million was wagered on the Super Bowl. And since the public generally went with uh, Denver, well, Las Vegas made a killing. You wonder how they're able to build those high-rise casinos, how they're able to keep the place open. Uh, it's not just the one-armed bandits. It's the people that think that they have an edge and know what they're talking about when it comes to football. And, of course, the public overwhelmingly put their money on Denver, and as a result, Las Vegas made over 19 million bucks, almost $20 million off of the public wagering on the Super Bowl. That's one game, one sporting event on one day, Vegas took in over 20 million bucks. 
That's not even accounting for the rest of the state of Nevada. And of course, the illegal wagering, you know, anything outside of, well, I guess Delaware now has uh, legalized uh, gambling as well. So anywhere outside of where gambling is legal, you can imagine that there was a lot of, um, a lot of wagering there, a lot of money that was made, uh, well, at least by, by some lucky schmo out there. All right. Well, Las Vegas anyway did. And one other kind of interesting note, and I just passed this along too, the website Pornhub.com. Yes, a it's a porn site, uh, a very popular porn site, I guess. Uh, they did uh, some interesting little metrics about what happened uh, during Super Bowl Sunday. And they plotted, they, sh- they have a graph that shows the uh, the amount of people logging onto their site from Denver and Seattle. And you see, you know, kind of normal usage throughout the day. And then as Super Bowl got closer, as it got closer to the game time, which I think uh, on the West Coast would be about 3.30 Pacific time, 4.30 uh, in Denver. As it got closer to those times, you, you could see the, the, the amount of people that were on the site would just drop off dramatically. And basically nobody from either city was logged on to Pornhub during the Super Bowl until about halftime when you see Denver, like a whole bunch of people logged back on and then stayed on, whereas Seattle, pretty much everybody stayed off all night until well after the Super Bowl and all the uh, festivities and pomp and circumstance were over with. Uh, it wasn't until much later that uh, people started logging back on there. But I, I guess Denver, you know, the fans, the Bronco fans were like, look, I need something to make me feel better, so I'm going to go back on my porn site. My, well, this game's a blowout. Might as well go watch porn. I don't, I don't know who says that, but apparently... According to Pornhub, a lot of people did. All right. Uh, On to a little bit more uh, substantive, serious kind of stuff. Uh, The Affordable Care Act, the rollout of that, once again, it's just uh, another embarrassment. You know, um, President Obama really didn't even address this during the State of the Union address last week. He didn't even really talk about it. I haven't talked about the State of the Union. And it's, it's old news. I won't really get into it a whole lot. I'll just mention uh, a little bit about it in a moment. But first, uh, the Affordable Care Act, uh, the, the, there's, there's a couple of interesting parts that I want to get into about this. Number one, you, know, you may know, and if you've listened to this show, uh, you know that they outsourced the construction of the Affordable Care Act, the, the, the healthcare.gov. They outsourced the construction of that to Canada. We spent $93 million as taxpayers on the construction of healthcare.gov. What you probably don't know is then those, the people that we uh, outsourced it to, the Canadians, uh, they turned around, this Canadian company turned around and outsourced some of that code elsewhere. They went elsewhere to get some more code. Uh, They went to, uh, of other, of all the nations to go to, that hotbed of technology, Belarus. Uh, It's a, um, there's a column here from uh, Bill Gertz. He writes about this and according to him, I don't know if this is true or not, but uh, apparently, some of the code that was written into healthcare.gov was uh, generated uh, in Belarus, and they're afraid because of the terrorist connections and the fact that it's Russia or this, you know, former so one of the former Soviet states, and uh, they're afraid that some nefarious type activity could be going on in some of this code. There could be stuff that's written in there that could track people's personal information. And uh, I don't know what anybody would do with that, but uh, of course, this is just another way to compromise the integrity of healthcare.gov. Um, obviously, the security issues, it's, it's been rated as uh, not secure by a lot of different individuals. Of course, the federal government, they tell us that, hey, it's a secure site. 
Your personal information is safe and secure. Absolutely no way anyone is going to get a hold of it, except for the fact that you did some of your coding in Belarus, more of it in Canada, and the damn thing doesn't work half the time. Maybe that's their, their saving grace is, hey, how could anybody possibly get your information when the damn website doesn't even work half the time? Maybe that's how they're going to play this off. Hey, our, how, we, we won't be able to give up your personal information. The damn thing is broken. So, but about Belarus. So this is, again, according to Bill Gertz, uh, you can take this information for what it's worth. But, uh, and of course, the U.S. government says, no, 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 the, the, the site's secure. You don't have to worry about this. They don't deny that some of the code is written in the hotbed of technology. The, uh, the Soviets or the former Soviet Republic of Belarus, the, um, the uh, what would you call that? The Silicon Valley of Russia? Yeah, because when I think of technology, that's what I think of. It's right up there with Siberia, uh, the Kamchatka Peninsula. I know they're putting out all sorts of, uh, of great technology over there. Wow. And you wonder why the damn thing doesn't work. Unbelievable. Um, the Affordable Care Act is anything but affordable, though. And that's the other part I want to get into is I just keep hearing story after story and reading article after article and blog after blog about how people have tried to log in and tried to sign up for the um, Obamacare. Only to find that their insurance premiums would be higher. And although in some cases, you know, they're about the same, really, give or take a few bucks. And, and even some people save a little bit on their monthly premiums. But the premiums are still high, but the real kick in the teeth is the deductible. Many people are finding out the harsh reality that your deductible when you sign up for Obamacare is in the neighborhood of anywhere from $2,500 to $5,000 or more. Three $4,000 deductibles are just not going to work for the average American. This is supposedly touted as the Affordable Care Act. Now, what does that mean? Well, when you go to the doctor, yes, you'll still have your copay. You're still going to, you know, shell out maybe 20 bucks. That's not the bad part. So if you're just going for doctor's visits, if, if you're generally speaking a healthy person, hey, Obamacare will probably work for you. But if at any point you need any sort of even, even what you would consider just more, uh, well, maintenance Medicare outside of, uh, outside of just a, a doctor's visit. So if you need like a colonoscopy, for example, or some x-rays, or, you know, you have to go see a specialist and have some other things done, maybe maybe just a, a small cyst removal. Like last uh, two years ago, I had a sebaceous cyst removed from my back. Um, you know, uh, if you have that done, that is going to, uh, that's, that's not covered. That's part of your deductible. So you, you'll have to pay out in full for that Let's say your deductible is what many people are finding out is like three or four thousand dollars. Most people, you can't afford that. What that means is you have to spend four thousand dollars out of your own pocket before the insurance starts paying for the coverage. I mean, imagine that. Who can afford that? What middle class or lower class American could possibly afford to shell out three or four thousand dollars before their insurance starts to kick in? That, by the way, is on top of the two, three, four, five hundred dollars that you're going to pay every single month just to have this crappy insurance. That's the problem. Four thousand dollar deductible and you're going to call this an Affordable Care Act. If you have any dental work done, you're going to have to pay out of pocket. Now, hey, look. Let's be honest, it's a good deal to people that have 
um, long-term serious medical conditions, cystic fibrosis, uh, various cancer. Um, you know, maybe you have a child with, uh, with you, I don't know, uh, deformities or some type of uh, just a long-term injury that requires sustained medical treatment where you're going to have to be shelling out a lot of money every single month. Well, then three or $4,000 a year, which is what your deductible would be, is kind of a bargain by comparison then. So sure, Obamacare is great for that particular niche purpose. But then don't call it an Affordable Care Act because for most people that are on it, most average Joe citizens like you and I that would uh, you know, presumably want to be on this, it's not a good deal. Uh, you you can't have you can't pay five hundred dollars a month, and then have a, a a three or four or five thousand dollar deductible. It just doesn't work. That deductible resets every year. It's not like well, I only have to pay out of pocket four thousand dollars one time and it's done. It's every single year it resets. So you have a surgery one year. Maybe next year you need some root canals and stuff. You're going to have to pay out of pocket up to four thousand bucks or five thousand bucks again the following year. So better hope you're just really healthy. Of course, if you're really healthy, the irony is then I guess you really won't need the Obamacare. Oi, oi, oi. All right. Well, so that's, uh, I just hear so many of these stories. I hear so many people telling me about how their insurance premiums are going up. People are posting online with, you know, screenshots of things that they're finding. Uh, it's just stuff that I'm seeing and hearing in articles and blogs and just everywhere. It's just too much to ignore. I can understand one or two people having a problem, um, you know, and that's, of course, assuming you can still get through the fact that the website still doesn't even even to this day still occasionally is having problems. A website that the taxpayer spent nearly a hundred million dollars on probably now we have because, of course, of the the maintenance, uh, the upkeep on the website. So we've probably spent more than a hundred million bucks on it, 93 million just for its construction. And uh, it still doesn't work. I mean, imagine that. Of course, there are so many things that we spend hundreds of millions of dollars on as a federal government or a state government, and of course, it doesn't work. So once again, government showing you uh, that private industry can usually do something better and cheaper and more efficiently. Uh, even so, and I'm not here to defend private insurance companies because, of course, the reason that we have Obamacare, the reason that people wanted Obamacare in the first place was because they felt that the insurance companies were just ripping people off and they were charging insane amounts of monthly premiums or deductibles or whatever. And so we came up with this idea. The problem with it is, number one, lawmakers uh, trying to write laws about health care doesn't make a lot of sense, especially when the people that helped those lawmakers write the laws were the insurance companies. Who do you think knows more about health care? A doctor? A lawmaker or an actuary at an insurance company? Well, guess which two of the three the federal government use uh, to help draft a bill? Well, it wasn't a doctor. Oh, they can say, well, we got some, uh, we got some advisement from, uh, from top medical uh, professionals, John Hopkins. and all. Yeah, but not in the construction of the law. That's the problem. This law is not written by doctors. It's not written by Joe Q. Citizen. It's written by lawmakers, lobbyists, insurance companies. More specifically, it was written by Democrats, you know, liberal Democrats, and the corporate greed guys. 
That's what it's at. That's where it's at. If you think that this is some, see, the, the, this is one that no matter what, you can't blame the failure of the Affordable Care Act and the Republicans because they, well, they, they couldn't stop it. They were in a minority at the time that this was passed. They tried to block it um, because, of course, you know, this is the, this is the real <laughs> kick in the teeth about all of it. You understand that the Republicans, at least many of the Republicans, um, well, they're supported by insurance companies. There, a lot of insurance companies donate money to various Republican candidates, but they also do Democrat candidates. It's just that uh, the Republican candidates, the reason that uh, the Republicans didn't get behind it is, number one, the Democrats are for it. So, of course, in today's day and age, in this in extremely polarized um, country that we live in, generally speaking, you have to be in opposition to whatever the opposing party does. You have to. Just because that's what your constituents want, because people people don't see things about the good of the country anymore. They just see it as, hey, if the liberals want it, I don't. If the conservatives want it, I don't. That's how each side looks at it. But the worst part is, this was a bad bill no matter who wrote it. It just so happened that the, the, the Democrats wrote this with the insurance companies and, you know, people say that, oh, it's the Affordable Care Act and Obama's for the little guy and the liberals are for the little guy, the working class guy. No, they're not. This is pro-insurance company. Make no mistake about it. Insurance companies love this. The only people that don't like this are working people, uh, for the most part. Doctors definitely hate this bill. Talk to just about any doctor. Every doctor I've, I've talked to about Obamacare, whether it's my primary care physician, my dentist, uh, you know, pulmonologist, whatever, anybody I've seen, you ask them about it and they go, oh, jeez. And, you know, some of these guys are like the most liberal guys. And they're like, I don't know. It's as if they wrote this thing just to screw us. And that's kind of how they look at this. And that's the problem. You know, they never really consulted doctors or, uh, or the average citizen when constructing a bill like this. And so that's why, that's why you're going to be paying your three and four or $5,000 deductibles. And you try to tell people this. And they think, oh, you're, you just don't like it because you're a conservative. You don't like it because you're, you're for the Republicans. And it's like, I'm not. Believe me, I don't want this thing because I don't know how we're going to pay for it. Yes, I think people should have some reasonable access to health care. Of course. But how are we going to pay for it? How we've come up with a, a, the, the idea we've come up with to pay for it so far is, ah, we'll, we'll figure it out later. We'll pass. We're going to pat it off. We're just going to, um, it's, it's kind of like uh, we're going to do deferred payments or we're just going to shuffle it off in the budget. We'll play a little shell game with the numbers and we'll sho shovel it off for a few more years down the road. And then we'll, we'll come up with something a few years later. Meanwhile, they'll never come up with something a few years later. It's just like our budget is now. Our budget is nothing but a continuing resolution after a continuing resolution. We just use the same old crappy budget every single year. We've made adjustments here and there. And I know Paul Ryan and, and, and what was it, Patty Murray. I know they came up with a, uh, a new budget uh, a few months ago. And, of course, I lambasted it because it was just terrible. We're not really saving uh, any mind-numbing amount of money. We're not cutting anything out of the budget. Nothing significant. How are we going to pay for this, quote, Affordable Care Act? Not only can the people not afford to pay for it, when they go to the doctor, they can't afford to pay for it out of their tax money. The government can't afford it. It's anything but affordable. It's such a, a misnomer. The Affordable Care Act isn't affordable for the government. It isn't affordable for the people. It isn't affordable for the doctors. It's not affordable for anyone.
The only people that benefit are the lawmakers that are going to get a little extra campaign contribution because uh, they got it passed and the insurance companies. The exact people we didn't want to benefit from this in the first place are the people that benefit. Congratulations, lawmakers. Way to go. You really did us a solid on that one. Holy crap. All right. Well, that's uh, that's the latest on the Affordable Care Act. Um, but incidentally, your uh, deadline to get enrolled if you don't have insurance, and of course you do have to get enrolled or else you, you pay a fine. That's the other thing. The federal government has mandated that you buy something from them. And in this case, it's insurance. And um, you have now, I think the deadline has been moved back conveniently till about mid-November, just after the midterm elections. Isn't that convenient? It's all gamesmanship. It's nothing but a big game to these folks. It is unreal. All right. I got to take a breath and a break. I am, I'm just, I get so wound up when I think about this and I, I go, there are people that still defend this thing. It is the biggest piece of crap. Even people in the Democrat party understand that this legislation is garbage. They know it. They've seen it. And you know how you know it's really garbage? Guess who's exempt from it? The president is exempt. He doesn't have to sign up for Obamacare. Congress doesn't have to sign up for the act that they passed. The law applies to everybody but Congress and the president and the Supreme Court and any high up official in the federal government. They don't have to sign up for it. That's how you know it's crap. And you know why they don't have to sign up for it? Because it would be a downgrade in medicine for them. It would be a downgrade in medical coverage. The, nobody has a nicer health care plan than Congress or the President of the United States or the Supreme Court. Nobody has it better than those folks. But you know who has it the worst? You know who still gets screwed in all of this? Incidentally, the military. They still go to the VA. And uh, it's nothing against people that work at the VA and the doctors and, and all that, but it's, it's a government-run health care facility primarily. And it's awful. And uh, the problem is, when you look at the VA, that's more like the coverage that, that the Obama administration and the Democrats wanted to put upon us. The kind of care you get at the VA. Oh, sure, it's free. I mean, it only costs you military service. Um, sure, it's free for the most part or, or you know, reasonably uh, or of a reasonable cost. But the quality is just abysmal. As someone who has had many members of their family treated at the VA and friends of the family treated at the VA and watch people die because of the bureaucracy of the VA and the incompetence of not the doctors necessarily or, or the people that work there, but the, the higher ups, the decision makers. Because of that, I just, I have such a low opinion of government health care. And, uh, and how we treat our military and all that. I mean, it all ties in. It really does. And that's why I just think this is such a bad deal. And I, I read so many things about how this is a bad deal for the average American. And I just, it just makes me sick. And I really hope, I really hope people remember this. Not only when the election comes around here in about, uh, what, nine months from now, but also... When we're talking about um, 2016, remember this. Remember what party brought this to you. And remember 
you know, there are other options than your typical DNR BS out there. Just try to remember that when you go to the polls, all right? All right, I got to go to a break. And uh, we'll be back with more of this excitement. Stay tuned. Heart and soul took control. Took control of me. Spread the news Hands across the sea Put me down, turn me round Turn me round to see Zip code famous Michael Graf show, February 4, 2014. Here's something else I saw during the Super Bowl and I have seen subsequently is uh, I saw ads for the Church of Scientology. You know, it's amazing uh, the, the brands and what the Super Bowl, the NFL will accept or what the networks will accept for advertising. And what they'll reject. They accept the Church of Scientology, but a gun manufacturer wanted to put an ad on the Super Bowl. And we couldn't have that. Yeah, because as we all know, certainly religions have never led to any harm, especially cults, underground, scam religions. I mean, I, I guess you could almost make an argument that they're kind of all scams in a sense, but if there's one that's like deliberately set up to be a scam, it is Scientology. It was invented by a guy who said that he was inventing a religion for the purposes of making money. When a, a science fiction writer creates a religion and tells you that he is creating it for the express purpose of making a buck... I mean, that's, I don't know what else you could call it but a scam. And then people take it seriously. Uh, it's its become this, you know, this whole 
cult thing. I, I don't know. It's it's insane. So that's the kind of ads that go on the Super Bowl, I guess. Uh, the Church of Scientology, way to go. I thought that was a local ad, but I guess a lot of markets got it. Yeah, there's a Church of Scientology uh, about a mile and a half from my house, incidentally. It, it went up uh, sometime last year, two years ago. I was going to go in there as a goof, but I was told by many people, don't even think about it. Don't go in there. They will stalk you. They'll do all sorts of crazy things to you, which, of course, at first, you know, I didn't really... I mean, I kind of believed it because I've been told by people that kind of know this stuff and who it's actually happened to. Uh, but, uh, you know, I just part of me is just like, I don't really care. I, I own a gun. I don't care if some weird guy like sifts through my garbage, you know. But then I thought, you know, who really needs that aggravation in their life? So I'll just talk crap about them on on the Web because nothing bad could possibly come of that. Right. I think the sevens of people that listen to my podcast aren't exactly going to run out and rat me out to the Church of Scientology anytime soon. I, I don't think that's going to happen, but who knows? Um, some other things going on. Oh, uh, Howard Stern uh, celebrated his uh, 60th birthday. Actually, that was last month, but they had a big party on the air uh, in commemoration of that uh, last Friday on Sirius XM Satellite Radio. And... There was a lot of musical performances. Uh, Train was there. Bon Jovi was there. A lot of different artists were there. Uh, celebrity interviews, including David Letterman. But the audience, of course, you know, uh, wouldn't shut up long enough for Howard to really get a, a great interview out of it. But it was still a, a little 30-minute interview with David Letterman. Um, I have to say, though, and, and I, I bring this up for many reasons. One, because of, of the influences I know I had in this business and in radio and wanting and broadcasting and all that. I always looked up to people that were pioneers or innovators in this business. And the two names that always came out whenever anybody asked me about this is I always thought the biggest influences in radio were Howard Stern and Phil Hendry. Um, you don't have to like Howard but you do have to acknowledge the fact that the guy really not only pioneered the business, innovated the business, but changed the face of the business. And for a while, I would even say changed the face of the business for the better. Um, there was a lot of in imitators and a lot of um, you know, crap that got spawned as a result of his being on the air because people wanted to emulate that success. So, of course, everybody tried to do it and many people did it badly. Um, but nevertheless, you have to acknowledge the fact that uh, back in the 80s and 90s and even the early part of the 2000s or the aughts, uh, Howard was very influential in the business. And it's hard to doubt the, and it wasn't just him, the, the staff, the writers on his show, the, the, the celebrities that he interviewed. And yes, I know he also had strippers and whores, naked women on the show and all that too. But he had uh, political figures he had community leaders. He had homeless people. He, he literally, he would talk to anyone. The show was for anyone and everyone. It was one of those shows that expressed a lot of the feelings that people had inside but would never actually put out there publicly. And he put them out there publicly. You know, he made it less taboo to talk about sex, to talk about uh you know, emotions and, and just the way you feel about people and honesty and all that kind of stuff. I, back then, it was a, it was an innovative, great show. And it was nice to see uh, that Sirius XM 
uh, threw him a, a little birthday bash, and that's great. Uh, unfortunately, the, my problem is that Howard of 1995 is not Howard of 2014. I mean, the show is so much different. Howard is so much different. Um, you know, I was, you know, a huge fan for many years. And I just think it's, when I was listening to it the other day, I listened to a little bit of it. I just, I felt sad. I, I really did. I felt like the, he was a, a young guy who was like edgy and controversial and irreverent, but not, not doing so for the sake of being edgy or controversial or irreverent, but just because that's the kind of person that he was. And now the show is almost, I would almost dare call it family friendly. I'm serious. Yeah, sure. The guy lets out some curse words from time to time. And once in a while, there's somewhat questionable material. But for the most part, a 12-year-old could listen to that show and not be any worse off than talking to his buddies on the schoolyard. I'm serious. It's it's really, it's borderline, it's borderline PC now. Um they don't talk about half the topics they used to. They don't use half the words they used to. They had characters on the show um, uh, called like Eric the Midget or Wendy the Retard. They don't use the word retard or midget on the show anymore. They don't talk about racial issues on the show anymore because everyone's so afraid to talk about them. Even Howard now is so afraid to talk about that kind of stuff. There's never any mention of any racial slurs. The, the show, the, and, and the part that, and that part doesn't even bother me as much as on Howard's channels, they have, um, uh, you know, replays of old shows from back in the day, from the 80s and 90s and 2000s. And the shows have been edited. Words have been edited out. Things have been edited out. Um, entire... Parts of segments have been edited. And when Howard went to Satellite, uh, he used the, you know, this tagline, uh, no more BS. Uh, there was not going to be any more of this uh, censorship. or any, But now he's censoring his own material or people that work there are censoring his material. And I think that it's just uh, sad. It's sad. Any performer that edits themselves and that, is ashamed or I mean that's that's the only thing I can think of is the guy is ashamed of of his old material like yeah sure some of my old material is kind of embarrassing but you know when I've d- I've done the Michael Graff show shuffle I put stuff up there from you know 2003 2004 2001 stuff that makes me cringe a little bit but at the same time I laugh about it I don't edit it the only things I ever edit out are maybe old email addresses that don't work anymore or phone numbers that go nowhere you know, that's about the only thing I'll ever edit out. If I even do that. Sometimes I'm just too lazy. <laughs> that's the truth. So I bring it up because I just think it sucks when somebody that you grew up with and somebody that you idolized is not only, and I don't mind a person growing and evolving as a human being, but when you become a, a judge on a talent show and you want to be accepted by America, who, by the way, will never accept you because they have that image of you from the 80s and 90s. Like once you get a reputation, it's very hard to change it. And all you're doing is pissing off your old fans, your hardcore fans that that liked you for the person that you were. So now you've pissed off your, your hardcore fans, your old fans, 
and you're trying to make new fans who won't accept you because, well, because they have that image of who you were. So now you've pissed off everybody. Now nobody wants anything to do with you. And I felt sad about that. There was a performer that was king of the, of the radio dial, made a movie, was on TV for a while, did everything, and now uh, wrote two best-selling books. And the guy is, he's the kind of guy that he would have made fun of 20 years ago. He owns like four cats now. He lives in the Hamptons. He's this really kind of PC liberal type of guy, the kind of person that he would have made fun of 20 years ago. And that's just sad. It really is. You know, and I mean, to a, a much lesser extent, I could sort of say that about Phil Hendry. I'm still, a, I'm a big fan of his, uh, but I, I know, you know, he's changed. People change. I get that. I get that people change. But it is so, I don't know. It, it just, um, it kind of just bums me out, I guess. I hope I never become that kind of person. Like, I hope... I don't mind growing and changing as a human being and becoming a better person. That part's fine. Uh, but maybe I never had an edge or maybe I did. I just hope that I don't grow up to just suddenly be like this. Um, oh, yeah, man. You know, I'm going to kiss everybody's ass. Like I, I, I like I like to call things as I see them. And I like and I like and respect people in radio or in media that do that. And people that suddenly have to placate because they're afraid of stepping on someone's toes. You can't be, I don't want to step on some senator's toes or some political figure's toes or somebody else, some Hollywood actor. I'm afraid, I don't want to say anything negative about him because, you know, even if they did something wrong, I don't want to say something bad about Mel Gibson because I don't want to be ostracized. When you start getting to be that person, when you go back and edit, the old version of you and try to put a better spin on it. The whole thing just makes no sense. And frankly, it is disgusting. It really is. From a creative standpoint, it just makes me throw up in my mouth a little bit and makes me lose any respect. And I know nobody cares if I respect you or not. I understand that. But I'm not the only one that feels that way. I Definitely not. You know, I'll always respect someone that's been able to hang around in the business for 35 years. Absolutely. But even Rush Limbaugh, I do have a, a monicum, at least a, 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 a tiny bit of respect for Rush Limbaugh in the sense that, yeah, I, I don't respect the fact that he's a, a major hypocrite and that he's a bloviating jackass who's nothing more than a talking piece for conservatives. Uh, but I, I respect a guy that's able to hang around in, in the business for 25 years like he has. Um, and, and that's at least worth something. But beyond that, uh, respect has ended. I'm not even really sure why I'm bringing this up. I guess just the fact that it's media and that, um, I don't know, it's this business. And I, I just feel passionately about something when um, somebody just... I don't know, craps all over the business. And when they just, I don't know, fall from grace, as it were. Oh, well. Um, a wrong turn could cost you three years in prison. At least it could cost an ex-military guy three years in jail. Apparently, 
This guy, uh, Louis DiNatale, was uh, on a trip through upstate New York, relying on his GPS because, of course, he's not really familiar with the roads up there, takes a wrong turn and winds up at the Canadian border. He was going down a road. He didn't intend to go down. He gets to the Canadian border, which, you know, hey, what's wrong with going into Canada? Well, <clears throat> he, was, uh, he had a gun in his car. Uh, Canadian Customs asked him if he was carrying any firearms. He said, uh, not that I'm aware of, but possibly. Uh, um, they asked him again. He said, well, I, I do have, you know, a concealed carry uh, permit. I have proper documentation. He's from the state of Kentucky, by the way. All of his, uh, and uh, as it turns out, yes, he did have a weapon in his car. He didn't know, uh, I guess it was in the trunk or something. Anyway. Uh, the Canadian uh, border officials busted him on attempted gun smuggling and lying to border patrol. And now a court date has been set for June. If convicted, he faces up to three years in prison for this uh, terrible, terrible offense. But he says, look, it's all a mistake. I was just driving. I was trying to get to a place. Um, the GPS took me down a, 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 the wrong road. And here I wound up at the Canadian border. Um, you know, I, I, look, I have all the documentation. Now, of course, the Canadian uh, officials say that, hey, look, it's okay if you bring a gun over the border, if you declare it, if you have a legitimate reason. Um, he says, look, I'm ex-military. All right. I'm ex-military. I've served my country. I have the documentation. I didn't even really know it was in there. I forgot about it. What do you want from me? But now he's had to hire an attorney and could be very, very expensive uh, legal fees and uh, a whole rigmarole just simply for uh, screwing up. But apparently this is not an uncommon thing. Uh, the Canadian border, uh, the, the customs at the uh, Canadian border, they've seized over 1,400 weapons just in the last year. And some people tell a similar story. I was just reading the comments here, and some people say the same thing, that the GPS led them down the wrong road. They didn't have a gun on them, but they got grilled by some of the Canadian officials. I always thought, and listen, it's been a long time since I've crossed over into Canada. But from what I understand, I mean, when I last time I went across the border from North Dakota in, it was like, oh, hey, how's it going? Oh, yeah, yeah. The only thing that they was like, oh, where are you from originally? I said, well, you know, I was born up here, but I, I live in Phoenix. They were upset because the the Winnipeg Jets had just moved to Phoenix. And they're like, oh, you you took our you took our Jets now. Oh yeah. It's like, oh, well, sorry, you know, it wasn't really my decision, buddy. That was the only hassling I got from the Canadian, but they were really nice. Seriously, uh, Canada people there are really nice. Um, you know, I, I don't think I'd date any more Canadians, but, but generally speaking, uh, aside from that, I mean, the people there are really nice. And, uh, so I've never had a bad experience, but that's, I've only had that experience and that's it. Crossing over into Canada one time and then coming back, um, the U S side, uh, they were nice too. They didn't ask any questions. Of course, this was before nine 11. The attitude back then was, all right. Hey, how's it going? All right. I mean, at most they might go, hey, uh, are you bringing any fruit over the border or anything like that? Going into Mexico was more annoying. Actually, coming back from Mexico was more annoying. U.S. Customs has always been worse for this kind of thing. 
at least in my limited experience. Then again, I haven't traveled outside of the U.S. since 9-11. So, I mean, certainly I've traveled plenty of times domestically, but never outside of the U.S. So, I, obviously, I know it's even going to be worse than that. Um, I do know that you get asked a bunch of, like, crazy questions when you go to another country. Like, uh, what are you, what's your business here? What are you doing here? Why are you uh, making the trip? I don't know. None of your business, maybe. How about shut your damn mouth and let me go get my luggage? Who cares why I'm here? If I really had bad intentions, do you think I'm going to tell you what they are? So what's the point of asking me this? What, are we, are we going to go out on a date? Do you want to know? Save the drama for Dr. Phil. I don't care. Thanks. Stupid customs. All right. Uh, let me see. Anything else? Oh, you know, I did want to... I know I brought this up at the beginning of the show and I it's old material, but I just want to get it out there about the State of the Union address and everything. I won't go on a whole long thing about it. It's except just to say when you hear Barack Obama speak, and this is just kind of a general thing. If you don't know any better, if you're not politically savvy, if you don't really keep up on what's going on in the news, if you're not really all that familiar with politics, you'd think, man, you know, the guy's a good speaker and says all the right things. Sounds pretty good. What he has to say, God, idealistically speaking, it doesn't sound so bad. If you have any context, if you put anything uh, in context with everything else that's happening, if you are politically savvy, if you do keep up on things, I'm not even saying you have to be a political wonk, just keep up on things. You realize that what the guy says is, is like very much used car salesman. And that's how I felt about that State of the Union address last week. I was just like, I, I can't believe this. Not once did the guy take any accountability for the fact that healthcare.gov still isn't working. Not once did the guy take any accountability for uh, the fact that the Affordable Care Act is, is it's just a bad move. Not once has he, did he bring up the fact that we're still in this massive debt, no budget uh, re reform has uh, taken place, nothing has gone on um, uh, to cut back on our just unbelievable spending. Um, so I really, what I took away from that speech was this is again a president that doesn't own any of the problems, doesn't take any responsibility for anything that's gone on. I mean, he is the president. I realized that he wasn't the one that wrote the budget. He did sign it, however. I realized that he's not the only one that's responsible for the debt in this country. But again, he didn't get in front of it. He didn't say anything about it. He didn't really address it. And uh, he didn't talk about his Affordable Care Act. The one thing that he pushed through, and that was the cornerstone of his entire presidency, his five years so far in office, the cornerstone of it has been this health care measure, which has turned out to be a complete disaster. And he didn't even address it. He didn't call anybody out. He didn't try and say, hey, look, we know we've screwed up with this thing. We know it's been bad so far. Uh, I'm going to get in front of this right now. I'm going to take responsibility and I'm going to tell you this is how we're going to fix it. And we are going to make it affordable or here's what we're going to do. None of that. This was a golden opportunity for the president to take accountability, take personal responsibility, come correct with the American people. And he didn't do it. Instead, it sounded like another campaign speech. Look, Mr. President, one way or another, in about three years, you're out of there. You're done. So let's stop with the campaigning. Let's stop with the rah-rah. Let's get down to some uh, to, to brass tacks here, and let's just take on the issues that are actually facing the country right now. It was just a little bit 
cringeworthy when I hear the guy talking about economic inequality in this country. Does anybody else get a little weirded out when a millionaire is talking about economic inequality? When a guy who is worth tens of millions of dollars lectures you about economic inequality? Doesn't that bother you at all? Uh, we have economic inequality in this country. CEOs are making way more than janitors. Uh, yeah, you think? Well, great, Mr. President. Thanks for that observation. Uh, but they're making way more than they ever did before. Well, yeah. We need to bring up the minimum wage. That's the other big talking point. We need to bring up the minimum wage. Okay, and what's that going to do? I tell you, this guy, I, I, for as smart as everyone claims that he is, he is so short-sighted and just puts out these empty sort of platitude-type statements that get you nowhere. If you bring up the minimum wage, it devalues the dollar further. All you do is actually shrink the middle class. You put the middle class into a lower bracket. By pulling other people up, you're actually dragging other people down. You've heard of trickle-down trickle economics. This is trickle-up poverty, I think. It's what it is. It's not trickle-down economics. It's not, uh, you know, that was that whole thing. You know, Reagan was trickle-down. This is, this is we're going to pull everybody up, but in doing so, we're going to be pulling down the middle class. If you, let's say you bring up the minimum wage from what it is now, seven twenty-five an hour. That's the lowest federally mandated minimum wage. Some states have a higher minimum wage. But let's say you bring it up from seven twenty-five an hour to fifteen bucks an hour, and I know we've talked about it ad nauseum on this show before. Uh, but just try and try and stick with it a little bit, okay? Say you bring up minimum wage from seven twenty-five an hour to fifteen dollars an hour. Who's going to be able to pay for that? A guy who's running a small business isn't going to be able to suddenly afford to pay his employees twice as much as he as he is now. How are you going to do that? Yeah, corporations could probably do it. But what we're looking at is the small business or the medium business guy. How is he going to be able to do that? Okay, let's say let's say just for a moment that they can. Even though they can, let's just say that they could. Now, the guy that was making $16 an hour is only making a dollar more than a minimum wage. $16 an hour right now is what? About 31, 32. 2000 a year-ish in that ballpark. So now that guy is right above the minimum wage and therefore right above the poverty line, whereas before he was kind of the lower end of middle class. So what you're, you're doing is you're redefining what the poverty line is. You're dragging a lot of people up you're dragging, what, uh, 20, 30% of the wage earners up to the poverty level. You're bringing the middle class down because, of course, what this does is, here's what happens. When, the pri when, when wages go up, the price of everything else goes up. It may not double like some people will tell you it does. Let's be fair about it. But the price of things would go up. I, I read somewhere that the price of a, of a Big Mac, for example, would go up by 68 cents. And people go, well, isn't uh, a 68 cents uh, worth it if people are making more money? Yeah, I guess so. Except if I suddenly am paying, if I go to a fast food joint, okay, and I buy a Big Mac, which is 68 cents more, and if a Coke is 30 cents more and fries are 40 cents more, 
let's say, well, I'm paying a couple bucks more, a dollar and a half more than I was before. So I might not go to McDonald's or I might not go out for fast food as often. I may not go and buy, and it wouldn't just be fast food. It would be everything would be would go up a little bit. I may have to save a little bit more because while the guy making minimum wage can suddenly, you know, he has double the amount of money that he ha had before. The guy that was making $16 an hour still is making $16 an hour and the price of everything else has gone up and he's not been compensated because an employer isn't going to go. Well, since the minimum wage got increased, you're making above it. I'm going to raise your your wage. They're not going that's not going to happen. So that guy is now suddenly going to take an economic hit. He's not going to be able to afford all those things that he was able to afford on 16 or $18 an hour anymore. He might have to make some decisions, and that means the retailers ultimately get less money. And, of course, the value of the dollar goes down when more people have more dollars. It's just how it works. So you're, you're essentially, by raising up the poverty level, by raising up the minimum wage, that's not even the poverty level, but when you're raising up the minimum wage, you're dragging down the middle class. Artificially adjusting the minimum wage in that dramatic a fashion only hurts the people that you're trying to help. You know, the poor people, yeah, it's great for them, I guess. But the guy that's right above that level, that's the guy that gets screwed. The guy in the 1501 to $20 an hour range is the guy that gets screwed. Rich people don't care. You're not hurting the rich people. Yeah, you know, they're going to take a little bit of a chunk out of it because they're the people that are creating the jobs and they're going to have to shell out more money. But you're not hurting the, the really wealthy people. You are hurting the small and medium sized business owner and you're hurting the middle class, the heart, the right in the center of the middle class. Those are the people that are going to take it the most. Even the upper middle class will take a hit. So in your attempt to help the poor, in your attempt to help the less fortunate, you're making it much harder for everybody else. And for them, ultimately. And for the country. And for the value of the dollar. Congratulations, Mr. President. Congratulations. So I, in that economic inequality crap, like... The State of the Union is not the time to be talking about, like, that's like, um, that's, you know, well, uh, CEOs make a lot of money. Yeah, they, they sure do. Hey, look, I, don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not here to defend corporations, okay? Corporations are greedy. We all know that. And I don't care if Walmart has to shell out more money to their employees. That's not the part that bothers me. The part that bothers me is the part where the value of the dollar gets decimated as a result of this. The part that bothers me is the part where the middle class gets screwed. Not the people at the bottom, not the people at the top, but all those schlubs in the middle, the middle class, those are the people that get screwed uh, by these types of policies. So that was just my thoughts on the State of the Union. I mean, this guy gets up there, he had a golden opportunity, but instead he's going to talk about economic inequality. And then at the end, he trots out uh, some soldier who had been wounded in uh, these stupid wars that we fight in Iraq and Afghanistan. And uh, these, you know, the pointless wars that Bush started, those stupid, pointless wars, especially the Iraqi war, that we all know is just a big mistake and a big sham. And, you know, that war that Obama said he was going to stop and he just continued, you know that. And we actually sent more troops over there and we've had more drone strikes 
I thought Bush was like the king of like, uh, you know, doing these stupid drone strikes, but Obama has actually ramped up the drone strikes too. You know those. So Obama trots out this, this uh, soldier at the end of the speech so that even the Republicans have to get up and applaud. Of course, because this guy's the great uniter. Barack Obama's the great uniter, even though this country has never been more divided. We have never been more polarized as a nation than we have under this president. And, uh, you know, you thought Bush was bad, and he was in, in some regard. But holy cow, all I heard about in this speech was about who's got what. It was like class warfare. It's like, hey, these rich people and these these corporations, again, and I'm not defending corporations, but to just single that out, this guy is very quick to point the finger at other people. He points the finger at Republicans. He points the finger at corporations. How about pointing the finger at yourself and your administration? How about pointing the finger at the NSA? How about pointing the finger at the federal government? How about pointing the finger at the fact that, you know, we never really did get a resolve on what happened with Benghazi, what happened with the IRS, what happens uh, with the NSA and all the leaks that are going on out there. You never really addressed any of that stuff. You never really addressed what's going on with healthcare.gov. That never got addressed at all. But no, what you certainly did talk about was economic inequality. Great. Great. Um, so what a what a speech that was. I, uh, I I can't. Sometimes I just can't fathom why how people can still be fans of this guy. I'm sorry, you know. And I listen. When the guy came into office, I didn't think he was going to be successful. But you know, I still root for the president. I still hope that the president is successful because if the president is successful, it means that the country is going to be successful. I don't care what kind of person he is. I don't care. Like, I, I didn't care that Bill Clinton had sex with Monica Lewinsky. I didn't care that he cheated on his wife. Nobody cared about that except for these, you know, hardcores out there that felt that that was wrong. Yeah, okay. You know, maybe he shouldn't have done it in the White House. Fine, I guess. I realize, you know, he is technically an employee of ours. He works for us. I get that. And I get, you know, who wants to have uh, their... Who wants to think of their boss uh, sleeping with someone um, on on their dime, you know, on on um, on on company time? Who wants to think about that? And just be accountable for what's going on. Just apologize. Just say, hey, look, you know, we've made some mistakes here, but here's what we're going to do in the future. Instead, you know what? You know, what Barack Obama said during this, the, the State of the Union that really got me. And this has been a theme of his. This guy's supposed to be, again, this uniter. He was going to hope and change. And you know what he said? Well, if Congress can't get something done, then I will. Then I'll do it. Meaning that he'll probably try to sign executive orders. Because that's what a great uniter does. A uniter says, you know, if uh, somebody obviously didn't tell him about the co-equal branches of government. If I can't get Congress to do what I want, then I'm just going to do it myself. Really? How does that work exactly? Because I always learned that we had three co-equal branches of government. See, we, we had this legislative branch, which makes the laws, and then this executive branch, which signs them into law, and then this judicial branch, which determines if they are, in fact, constitutional, and they interpret the law and they say, okay, well, this is acceptable or no, this is not acceptable. See, I kind of thought that was how it worked. 
But apparently the executive branch can, you know, if, if he doesn't like what the legislative branch is doing, can just go, you know, I'm just going to do it my way. I'm going to Frank Sinatra this bitch. Way to go. Great. So, can we just get a president that's not a complete joke? We had a guy that couldn't even complete a sentence without some help. And now we have a guy that can make all the mistakes he wants, and the media will just defend him and play, you know, the part of PR spinster for him, spin doctor. And no one will ever call him out on these things. And he never has to take any responsibility or accountability for them. It's... I, I have to stop watching these presidential addresses. I have to stop watching President Obama speak. It just, it makes me too mad. And I can't believe... Okay, once I can believe the American people get fooled one time. But twice... Uh, all right, look, anyway, groffshow at gmail.com. That is the email address, groffshow at gmail.com. Michael Groff on Twitter, Michael Groff Show, AOL Instant Messenger. For everything else Michael Groff related, the one, the only, michaelgroff.com. Go there. Donate to this program. Listen to the shows. Uh, sign up so you can get email notifications when a new show is posted. Thank you so very much for listening. Really do appreciate it. Have a great night, everybody. See you next time.